I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Lippman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Every Thursday, we try and answer the questions about politics you didn't even know you should be asking. This week, we want to know, how do you flip a red state blue? And to help us answer our question, we're talking to Tram Nguyen. Tram is a co-founder and co-executive director of New Virginia Majority, a political advocacy group that's been focused on mobilizing communities of color and turning that red state blue. Faz, I'm really excited to have this conversation today. As a native Virginian, I was born and raised in the suburbs of D.C. Um, Watching Virginia change from the Virginia I grew up in to the place it is now has been incredible. So I think like it's worth setting some context here. Yeah. I used to drive on Robert E. Lee Highway to go to football games against the Stonewall Jackson Generals. We did not have MLK Day. We had Lee Jackson King Day. We had a moment of prayer in schools every morning. They called it a moment of silence, but it was a moment of prayer. And... Basically, up until the mid-90s, I believe, they taught the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression in Virginia public schools. Like, that was just where I grew up. (laughs) And now they've abolished the death penalty. They ended the gay and trans panic defense. They have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. They expanded Medicaid. It is so far from the Virginia I grew up in, which is so fucking cool. You know, for people looking for reasons to hope and believe of a better future, Virginia is giving those to you. And one of the unique opportunities I think that Virginia has is that they're constantly holding elections and sometimes in times when other people aren't. For instance, this year, they will be holding a gubernatorial and uh, lieutenant governor's election. And it ends up being, I think, an advantage. I think uh, Tram will agree to doing year-round organizing. And I think Virginia has some things about it that make it both special and not special. Right. What Virginia Democrats have done over the past decade is build sustainable power. And it is what we need to be doing nationwide. It is you win locally, you win nationally, then you use that power to ensure that you can keep holding it. What they have done is make these elections more fair so that everyone is on the same playing field. And we know that because democratic policies are more popular, because the demographics of the state are such that there are more democratic voters, that allows Democrats to keep holding power. Trim, I think we'll really talk to this of it doesn't happen overnight. And once you've done it, it is so much easier moving forward. Well, I'm excited to get into the conversation. Let's introduce Tram Wynn. Tram Wynn, welcome to Battleground. We are so glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. You started New Virginia Majority 14 years ago. How has this experience changed for you as an operative? Was there an inflection point for you? This was really hard to start, you know. (laughs) So we started in 2007, frankly, in reaction to a lot of the political conditions and what was happening in this country at the time. Our folks felt really disappointed that we didn't get comprehensive immigration reform. If you remember, in 2006 and 2007, there was huge protests across the country. There was bipartisan support in Congress for comprehensive immigration reform. I think Congressman Sensenbrenner carried the legislation. And despite millions of people on board from all sides of the aisle, right, saying, we need this, We didn't get it done. And even here in Virginia, some of our politicians were not fully supportive. And I think our analysis at that point was it wasn't enough to just organize. It wasn't enough to do direct action and take to the streets unless we were also doing the electoral organizing and making sure that new Americans such as myself are actually registering to vote and getting out to vote, that it would be really challenging to change the political dynamics. So 
the early years of our organization in 2008, I think Virginia went for Barack Obama and it was the first Democrat that Virginia elected for decades. And folks were like, oh, that's exciting. Maybe Virginia's on the cusp of change, right? And then in 2009, we had a gubernatorial election and our House of Delegates and you know our state legislative elections. And it was a complete opposite. Republicans took control. Tea Party folks won like up and down the ballot. And so then nationally, folks were like, oh, well, 2008 was such a fluke. It was the Obama wave. Virginia isn't blue. Virginia's not even purple. Like, that's not a thing. That was Bob McDonald, who won the governorship around that time, the former corrupt governor of Virginia. Right? Exactly. And so those of us, though, who live here, we're like, no, there is something here. Something's changing. The people that turn out to vote in 2008 and even turn out to vote in 2009 are a little different. And if we can keep going, if we can keep encouraging people to get off the sidelines to vote, then we can really shift the conditions here in the, the landscape. So we kept going. And I will say it was hard. People were like, oh, that's cute. Keep trying. <laughs> but we did because those of us who lived here knew because we experienced it. Life has changed. I think 2013, with the election of Terry McAuliffe and Ralph Northam and Mark Herring, that statewide ticket, and starting to shift folks' thinking a little bit. And then in 2017, frankly, holding the Democrats, being able to hold all three statewide races and to flip 15 seats, I think was the inflection point, Amanda, that you're talking about. You know, in 16, Virginia was the only Southern state to vote for Hillary Clinton. And then people were looking at us like, maybe there's a little hope. <laughs> there was a lot of weight on our shoulders. And so in 2017, we delivered. And then again in 2018 and 19. And so it's been a really wild and uh, exciting time. So you mentioned that you were around for 14 years. Give everyone a sense of how many people are on staff, what the yearly budget is, just generally the operations of it. So people know what we're talking about in terms of building a new Virginia majority or any other like-minded group? So we now have a full-time staff of about 45 people, which is a lot larger than my our staff of one when we first started, me. <laughs> During election time, that might ramp up to more folks because we'll hire field organizers that can actually go out and talk to voters at scale so that we can reach the hundreds of thousands of voters that we reach every year. So it depends and it ebbs and flows. But in general, our annual operating budget is around $3 million. And then depending on the cycle and how interested people are in Virginia and everything else, it, it might increase or, or not. Your group, like some others, is focused on organizing year-round, but I don't get the assumption that we just invest in organizing and magic happens. Can you talk a little bit about what your theory is of how you organize people to get engaged and involved? Yeah, I think it really centers on the people. You have to meet people where they are. And when you have conversations where you are trying to meet people where they are and they see that, that you're actually genuinely trying to get to know them and the issues that are important to them, they open up because they realize that this isn't a transactional conversation that they're having, that there's somebody here who actually wants to listen to me, who sees me. And I think the year-round work is really important because in most campaigns, you go knock on someone's door, and you're asking for their vote. And there's little interaction after that. And for us, elections are never the finish line. It's actually the starting place of our accountability work and our opportunity to actually pass policies that will fix shit for people. That's what this is all about, right? We're trying to 
create a world where we want to live in, where our folks can thrive. And I think the approach that we have, and it's not just year-round organizing, but it's building authentic political homes for people where their opinions matter, where we're taking into consideration their lived experiences, where they can actually cultivate their own paths to victory and their own wins. So it's really about creating authentic political homes for people to engage and to take leadership. And that's what the work is all about. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What does that look like in practice to have a political home? So my favorite example is around the work that we do with returning citizens. So about 12 years ago, when we started organizing in certain neighborhoods, especially in like the city of Richmond, we thought that the issue that we could really galvanize folks around was public education and investment in our schools. The city's schools have been run down, underinvested in for years, for generations. I mean, every year, teachers are asking for donations for toilet paper. Mm. I mean, this is how bad it is. And as we were talking to folks, I mean, one of the things that came up was we can do all of this. We can organize and we can protest, but People aren't really going to listen to us because we don't have that political capital. We don't have that power because our right to vote has been taken away. And so we started doing rights restoration work as a part of that and trying to change Virginia's policy around felony disenfranchisement. And we're having great success. And by seeing folks, by hearing that that is actually one of the barriers that they have to participating, to being engaged, we were able to craft not only a, an issue campaign around public education, but an issue campaign around the right to vote and restoring folks' right to vote. Those same folks that brought those issues to us years ago are now leading their own campaigns around criminal legal reform, mm. where we've the first state in the South to end the death penalty this year. We've got expungement laws. on the, And so it's like all of these things where the people are actually driving the issues and they're seeing the change happen right before their eyes. And they're able to make that connection that elections matter and elections have consequences. If you elect people that actually are aligned with us, then these things that we've been fighting for for so long actually can, like, we can change that, right? So that's what I mean. Like, we've created these places, these spaces for folks where they can identify a problem come up with a solution, and then a campaign and a plan to get to that solution and to hold their elected leaders accountable. It's really meeting people where they are and understanding what it is that's making them tick or that would get them off the sidelines to participate. What are their on-ramps? I think that's really, really important because you can't make assumptions when you go into a community about what they might care about. How do you find those on-ramps? You talk to them. It's so basic and so simple, but you talk to them. That's what organizing and building relationships is all about. When you organize people, you talk to them. I sometimes train progressive leaders around organizing. When I think about power building and organizing, it's about organizing people, organizing ideas, and organizing money. And when you organize people, we tend to say, encourage folks to have an 80-20 rule. You're 20% talking and 80% listening. And that way you really get to know a person and they feel seen and heard and then they're likely to continue to engage in conversations with you that then could become another conversation, another conversation that turns into action. And that's how you really bring people along. And it goes back to elections are never our finish line. Elections and voting is a tool that we have in our toolbox. But at the end of the day, we are about 
building power for people, for our communities. And power means the ability to change policies, Mm -hmm. to improve our lives. And so most of the work we do is actually around advocacy and community organizing and having these conversations with people to identify the problems and the solutions that they want and to work out, okay, how do we go about doing that? Another issue that was really important for our folks was in the immigrant community around driver's licenses. You know, a lot of undocumented immigrants for the longest time came to us and said, we care about in-state tuition. Yes, we do. We want our young folks and our dreamers to have in-state tuition. But really, really what we want and what we need is driver's licenses. We can't get to work. We can't get to school. We can't take our kids anywhere, go to church or whatever, without a license. And I don't know if y'all know Virginia or not, but we don't have a whole lot of public transit. Uh (laughs) You know, like our transportation infrastructure is very lacking. So that's what we did. It was a six-year fight around getting driver's licenses and driver privileges for immigrants, no matter where they came from or their status. So that's the work we do. We just keep building relationships, keep bringing people into the organization and into the communities. We're trying to change the world, and there's lots of issues facing the world. So (laughs) it's a lot of issue work year-round, frankly. Tram, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to a political consultant about the problems of the broader ecosystem, about the struggle to raise money for year-round organizing, acknowledging that year-round organizing, being better funded, will both win elections and solve some broader cultural issues within the Democratic Party. What has your experience been like funding this work? I think it hasn't been as challenging for some of us in Virginia to raise money because we are always in cycle. Mm -hmm. We have elections every year. We're able to talk about the work in a way that helps people understand the integrated nature of not only the voter work, but then the organizing that happens outside of the electoral work. And so it's gotten easier over the years, but it is still a big challenge for us. And I think this idea that Virginia is a blue state has been hard for progressive organizations to convince people, to convince funders that there still needs to be investment here, that we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that is on top of a lot of people's minds in Virginia is how do we make sure that people aren't, you know, taking a look at it and be like, okay, they're good. Let's move on to another place. It is just as hard to raise money when you're winning as when you're losing. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Tram Win in a second. Welcome back to Battleground. Tram, Virginia is about to be in the news in a big way over the next month as we head into the Democratic primary for the gubernatorial election. For those who aren't familiar, Virginia has off-year elections, so every four years there's a new governor. Virginia governors are term-limited. They can only run for one term at a time, so you can come back four years later, but you can't do so consecutively. And I think the gubernatorial election right now is particularly interesting because on both parties, it's a sort of meta story for what's happening. You know, the Republican Party candidates are, each one is a little crazier than the next. And on the Democratic side, you have Terry McAuliffe, who is the former Virginia governor, who was a good governor and is perhaps not reflective of where Virginia is going. Um, I know you, New Virginia Majority has endorsed Jennifer McClellan. I personally am a big fan of Jennifer Carroll Foy, both black women running to be governor of the state. But we can both agree it's time for not Terry. What is your read of the governor's race right now and of sort of where the Virginia political enterprise is going in this sort of off-year election? Off-year elections are always tricky. Mm -hmm. 
We have them. We have elections every year. <laughs> it's it's both a blessing and I love it because I love democracy. And it's also, gosh, I really need a break sometimes. <laughs> but uh, off-year elections are interesting because the electorate looks different. And in a typical off-year election, voters tend to skew older, whiter. Mm-hmm. And the work that we have been doing for years, year after year after year, is to change the electorate, to expand the electorate, to make it more diverse, to make get more folks off the sidelines and into the arena to vote. And so I think it's really going to depend on turnout. Who's actually showing up to vote mm-hmm. this June is going to really determine our next nominee. And whether that's reflective of the state as a whole or not, that is the big question. If a more diverse electorate shows up on June 8th, then I think that Terry McAuliffe will have a harder time, you know, winning that nomination. But on the Republican side, they're doing this convention, I think, next Saturday. And it'll be interesting to see how the 53,000 delegates who signed up for the convention, who they decide their nominee is going to be. It's, it's also like a the approach that the, the two parties are having in terms of how they're selecting their folks is interesting, right? You get, mm-hmm. on the one hand, 53,000 Virginians get to decide who the Republican nominee is going to be, the direction of their party. On the Democratic side, it's an open primary. And we expect turnout to probably be somewhere around 600, 650,000 voters. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Tramp, say a word, if you wouldn't mind, about the composition of the people running, both for governor, lieutenant governor. Across the board, it feels like one of the most diverse slates that I've seen in a while, not just at the top, but also all the way down the ticket here. Yeah, it's a diverse slate for sure. And it's also diverse not only in terms of demographics, whether it's people of color running, women, men, et cetera, but it's also a diverse range in terms of political experience. You've got a lot of newcomers who've never held office, who are community leaders, who say, you know, I think I'm ready. I want to run, which is exciting because I think the more people that are seeing themselves engaged in our political process who feel like they're ready to run should And I think it just makes the conversations more robust and stronger. It also gives people a lot more choices, which can be confusing. (laughs) And I think the challenge right now is for each of these candidates and their supporters to really make a case to voters as to why their candidate is the right choice and why and how they're set apart from the others. But it is an exciting time. I think we've got five people running in the Democratic gubernatorial primary Some folks have dropped out, but at one point there was like eight people running for that lieutenant governor seat. Mm -hmm. It's a wild time. And Tram, what does the Republican Party of Virginia look like? What does that ecosystem consist of? It's interesting that you ask that question, especially in this moment where they're about to go into this convention that is messy. Mm -hmm. And I think from what I've seen and observed in the news and on social media, that they had a long journey to get to where they are with the convention next week and everything else. It reads to me a little bit like they are they are searching for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think the question that's looming over the Republican Party in Virginia is how much do they want to lean in around Trumpism. And you have Amanda Chase, who is a self-proclaimed Trump in heels, mm-hmm. who is a front-running candidate for governor on the Republican side. And then you have more moderate Republicans that are saying, wait, that's not us. Like, that's not our party. That's not who we are. That's not who we identify as. And so I think the Republican Party more so than the Democratic Party, at least at least at this point, is facing a little bit more of an identity crisis and challenges internally around, you know, what their next um, 
their next leadership and their next iteration is going to look like. Battleground will be back after a quick break. Battleground is back with Tram Wynn from New Virginia Majority. I'm a native Virginian, born and raised in Fairfax. I grew up on the edge of the northern Virginia suburbs where like the gas station closest to my house had a big sign every year that like, Santa buys his guns here, which I always found really disorienting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it strikes me that the Virginia of 2021 is miles apart from the Virginia I grew up in. And even the Democratic Party of Virginia in 2021 is miles apart from the Democrats that were able to win occasionally in the Virginia of the 80s and 90s. How much of that is a national shift in the party? How much of that is organizing? How much of that is just the demographics of Virginia having changed so drastically over the last 20 or 30 years? I think it's probably a combination of all of the above. Mm -hmm. To your point on demographic changes in Virginia, as I said earlier, I'm a lifelong Virginian myself. My family immigrated here in 1981. I was actually born in a refugee camp in Thailand. So I was six months old when when we arrived. Mm -hmm. And I would say in the 80s, it was a vastly different place. I grew up in the suburbs of Richmond. And I remember, you know, when I was six years old, my classmates debating in front of me whether I was black or whether I was white. Mm. And that was because at the time, only 1%, one in 100 Virginians was foreign born. You fast forward to today and that's like one in seven. So that's a huge shift in 30 years. But I also don't think that demographics is destiny. Just because the demographics have changed does not automatically mean something that the political winds have shifted or that, you know, they're automatically aligned with one party or another. You have to, again, understand these communities and understand the folks that live in these communities and what issues are important to them. So I think in part it's demographic shifts. And and I think the Democratic Party has done a better job of having more leaders that reflect Virginia's diversity. If you look at the folks that were elected in 2017 and 2019, more women, more people of color. In 2019, Ghazala Hashmi was elected to the Senate, first Muslim American woman elected to Virginia's General Assembly in its 400 plus year history. Mm. When we have more people that look like us, that actually are reflective of our demographics, then I think that also creates a different political dynamic mm-hmm. and policies start to take shape in a different way. So I think it's all of the above, honestly, Amanda, in terms of why we are where we are today. I want to talk about voting rights. <laughs> so na- <laughs> nationally, we've been fighting to expand voting rights, obviously locally and in places like Georgia, Texas, Arizona, we have seen efforts to restrict voting rights ongoing efforts to restrict voting rights. In Virginia, we have a wonderful thing going. We are expanding voting rights protections. You mentioned, obviously, for re-enfranchising formerly incarcerated individuals, expansions of early vote, absentee vote, uh, no excuse absentee vote, voting holidays, a lot of things going on in Virginia. A, could you talk a little bit about the actual voting rights expansions that we've seen in the state and how critical they have been to your efforts to organize? I love that you asked that question because voting rights are like, it's my heart's work. (laughs) It's like everything that I love. We have the committees that deal with these bills uh, meet at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays and Tuesday mornings. And I've been doing that for like 13 years. I will show up at these 7 a.m. meetings and just make sure that we are doing everything we can to expand the right to vote. So we have, I think, shown this country 
what expanding access to voting can look like from a policy perspective and what it could look like from a power perspective. From a policy perspective, in the last two years, we have gone from being 49th in the nation for access to voting to now 12th. And I think after this past legislative session, we will skyrocket even more to the top. So we've done things like even before COVID happened and folks were really trying to expand vote by mail, for example, we did that. We have a 45-day early voting period, which is, I think, the longest in the country. Minnesota has a 45-day as well. There are very few states. Anybody who wants to vote by mail can do so. No excuse needed. Just make a request. You can be a permanent vote by mail voter in Virginia if you want to. So I signed up for that. So now I don't have to request it every year or every election. They just automatically send it to me. We got rid of our strict photo ID requirements. We passed same-day voter registration that will start going into effect next year. We've got drop boxes, which a lot of states are trying to do away with at this point. I mean, you name it, and we've pretty much got it done. But the big thing that we got done this year that I'm, I just, I mean, it was a labor of love for those of us that were involved with it, is we passed the State Voting Rights Act. It's the most comprehensive voting rights act in the country. It's modeled after the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It requires every locality in Virginia that wants to make a voting change to either have a robust public comment period or to have it cleared by the attorney general's office to make sure that there's no impact, no disparate impact on protected communities, people of color, language minorities. It expands language access in terms of elections in Virginia. It's just this message, this policy and this message that says Virginia is going to protect your right to vote no matter what. And I think it can be an example for the rest of the country in terms of how you approach this. And when you have more people voting, when you have more people able to exercise their right to vote, the political landscape changes, policies start to change, (laughs) politicians start actually listening to people who live in their communities. It's no longer just a small group of folks that get to make all the decisions. You actually have more democracy, more participation. And that's what this country is about, this representative democracy, making sure that the people elected in office truly reflect and represent the people they aim to serve. So yeah, voting rights is near and dear to me. I think it's it's no matter what other issue you care about, whether it's climate justice, whether it's healthcare or education or whatever it is, your ability and our ability to affect change in all of those things really is undergirded by our ability to exercise our right to vote, to hold our elected leaders accountable. Tram, you know, part of the work I do at Run for Something and that our team does is helping identify leaders who genuinely understand their communities in order to run for local office. And that often means leaders who look a little different than the leaders who've come before. I think this is something that New Virginia Majority and that your work in organizing has really um, narrowed in on of you need to make sure you understand the people you're trying to serve. What has that looked like in practice as you reflect on the work you've been doing? That's a great question. I think it's, for us, authenticity really matters. And so recognizing that where we do our work and where we invest means that we are focused in places and in communities where we have been focused for a long time, where we've been trying to build power. So for New Virginia majority, that tends to be what we call the urban crescent in Virginia, where there's more people of color, more young folks, 
Northern Virginia, outer suburbs of Northern Virginia, Richmond, Henrico, sort of the, the central Virginia area, and then Hampton Roads, where there's a large Black population, large Asian population. And so that's where we focus a lot of our energy and our work and where we have built relationships with community and have identified and built up community leaders. Folks asked me after 2019, after we had wild successes, why don't you go to Southwest Virginia? We need some really good organizing capacity in Southwest and in parts of rural Virginia. And my response at the time was, you know, we, one, we don't need to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why coalition work is really important. If we want to build authentic organizing and base in those communities, it's really more important to identify leaders there and organizations there that we can support and help them build out the base and build out their organizations that we would not be as New Virginia majority the authentic messenger, the organization that makes the most sense to build in some areas. And we recognize that. I think that's really important. Yeah. Identifying local leaders that understand their communities best and to help them build out the infrastructure that's needed rather than just saying, hey, we know exactly what we're doing and we're going to come in and fix shit for you and fix your community because that's not how this works. Yeah, people always say like, we need to spring to Stacey Abrams or bring tram to Arizona or Texas or wherever. It's like, no, actually, there are people doing this work there already. You need to empower them and uplift them and train them and support them. You don't need to export someone from somewhere else. Yeah, there are amazing people in Arizona and Texas and across the country. I mean, I, mm-hmm. the more folks that I get to know and learn about, I'm like, oh, my God. You inspire me. There's so much good stuff happening. And we just have to be willing to hand over the keys Mm -hmm. to these folks and say, do it, right? You know how to do this best. And imagine if we did that, what this world could look like. The thing that strikes me as we're having this conversation is that you told the story of the trajectory of Virginia politics from 2007 when New Virginia Majority started, where... We want Obama won, but then they elected a Republican governor. It took a couple years, 10 years more to win over the state legislature. It took time, a combination of investment and demographics, as you so ably described. When you look to other states that are just now starting to have that same experience that Virginia had in 2007, you think Georgia or Arizona, what are your recommendations to them, to the organizers, the funders, the folks who are working to do what you have done in Virginia elsewhere? I think it's investing in infrastructure Mm -hmm. and um, being patient that change doesn't happen overnight. And that was our biggest lesson learned. When I talked about 2008 and then the 2009 challenges, after the 2009 elections, folks pulled out. People left our state. Organizations left our state. Funders said, you know, you're on your own. And I think It's really important for folks to know, especially when you're trying to build power or trying to change the landscape of states in the South, like Georgia or Texas, that have deep roots in a culture and a history that does not lend itself to allowing more people like us to, to have a seat at the table, that it takes time. And that we need to really invest in infrastructure, meaning in organizations and community leaders that understand the landscapes there, who can build these authentic relationships and really build this power from the ground up. Don't give up because no place is unwinnable forever. Mm-hmm. Give people room to grow and to build the coalitions that they think are needed 
in order to sustain movement building in a place. Ten years ago, I think there were probably four organizations that sat around various coalition spaces in Virginia. And today, I mean, some of our coalition spaces are 20, 30 groups strong. On our fight for Medicaid expansion, we had 133 organizations that are part of that coalition. And so people exist. Organizations and leaders exist in every one of these places and give folks in these states the room they need to identify and grow and build relationships with folks. And then the other thing I would say, the flip side of that, is that just like no place is unwinnable forever, when you win, you can't let up and leave either. Mm -hmm. Because to sustain this movement also takes ongoing investments in people and ongoing investments in infrastructure and ongoing investments in this power building, because it can be flipped just as easily. Absolutely right. And something we can all take action on. Tram, thank you so much for joining the Battleground Podcast. Thank you so much, Tram. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I always love having these conversations and you had very thoughtful questions. So I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tramwin for joining us on this episode of Battleground, a, I think, really interesting and illuminating conversation on what it takes to genuinely flip a state. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer. And Christian Castro-Vosell is our executive producer. <laughs>